Spectrum is brought to you by the Scripps College of Communication at Ohio University. Before a new idea can become a way of thinking, before one detail can flip the narrative, before anything that matters can change the world, it must, above all, be known. The duty of the Scripps College of Communication is to bring forth the people who bring forth the knowledge, by word or image or data stream and in every medium and by all means, they succeed. They say, make it loud, make it clear, make it known. Learn more at ohio.edu slash Scripps College. Welcome to Spectrum. I'm your host, Tom Hudson. On Spectrum, we cover a wide range of topics that are important to our lives. We feature journalists, authors, scholars, policymakers, activists, scientists, innovators, and sometimes people with just fascinating stories. Today, our guest is David Collins, an eight-time Emmy Award-winning producer who was the creator of Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and hundreds of hours of groundbreaking programming over the past 25 years. He was on the Ohio University campus as this year's undergraduate commencement speaker and shared with us how he has made a stellar career out of giving voice to marginalized populations. This month, David has two new programs premiering. Secrets of the Hillsongs Church on May 23rd on FX and Hulu, and Mere People on Netflix on May 23rd. Welcome back, David. Yeah, it's been uh, how many years since you've been back? Well, it, it, you know, it's funny. I, I did come back about a year ago, year and a half ago. My father passed away, uh-huh. and um, uh, he grew up in Zanesville and Crooksville. So uh, my partner and I took a little road trip and went and visited family and friends. And uh, I called Sarah, Sarah Schneider, a good friend of mine who I graduated with, who works here. And she said, let me get you a room at the OUN, stay the night. (laughs) It was dead of winter. It was the end of January. I was obviously in a bit of a fog. Uh, And uh, so that was the last time I was here. But the time before that was all the way back in 2003, when I came back with Brian Unger, that's right, Randall Winston, <laughs> Margot Myers, all graduates from my class, and we did a, a fun little like pop culture uh, <laughs> thing with David Discutner, uh, an interview with him back in the day. So, how does it feel though to be back mm. and being the commencement speaker? I mean, of, of all things, I mean, when you left here in 1989, yeah, that had to be the furthest thing from your <laughs> mind. And quite frankly, it still is. <laughs> this morning, uh, I went to the Convo Center yeah. and, and uh, just took it in and just took a breath. Um, I'm going to be honest with you. It has definitely been um, a beautiful homecoming. Um, I ran into you yesterday on the right. stairs. Yeah. And I don't think you do, but I, I was sitting there having a full-on cry. I was having a good cry. Um, I'm a big crybaby to begin with, but it all came rushing in, um, as it is right now even, honestly. Um, it's, it's an unbelievable honor to be here and to have such a homecoming that feels 
like family that I haven't seen in in a long time. When when you were a young man in Cincinnati, yeah. gr- growing up, um, why did you come here? What what, what what were what were your goals when you came here? I mean, most of us had some goals. They probably yeah. changed yeah. eight million oh, times, a hundred times, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I have a funny story. So it was my junior year in high school, and. I lived in a very farm area, Westchester, back in, you know, 35 now years ago. Now it's one of the elite it, it's parts what, of exactly. Cincinnati, right? But it was all farmland. It was, you know, and I was a little preppy kid who who was a little bit different than all the farmers. But I joined FFA, the Future <laughs> Farmers of America, because I wanted to be – a veterinarian, and you had to raise animals and take pigs to slaughter and all of that. And coincidentally, because speaking of commencement speech, I ended up becoming like the guy who could speak at FFA, and I went to nationals for prepared <laughs> public speaking of the FFA creed. I believe in the future of farming with a faith born not of words but of deeds. And still remember it, obviously. But I remember a, a junior count, high school counselor. I, I was a junior yeah, in right. high school. She came up to me and she says, David, I, I need to see you. you know? And I was you, like – You I never like, know about that. You never know. And she said – Look, I just – I don't want to be the bearer of bad news and break the news, but you are not going to get into medical school. <laughs> You're just not. It's not happening for you, young man. Your goals, your grades, your GPA is just not happening. She said, you got a great personality. You seem like a good guy. Maybe radio or TV? And it kind of clicked in that moment. And believe it or not, she handed me a pamphlet for Ohio University. And my dad, I remember saying, well, let's drive. I live in, you know, I grew up in Crooksville and Zanesville. Let's drive over. Let's drive over. And come to find out, my grandfather, my dad's dad, went to OU – 100 million years ago in the podiatry school. Oh, Lord. He became a podiatrist. <laughs> I know, right? A foot doctor. Um, so I'm a I'm a, a legacy. What do they call it? Yeah, a legacy of, of, of your of, grandfather. Of my grandfather's. And uh, I ended up at OU by hook and Wait, by accident. When you came here, when I came here back in the late 60s, you came here in the mid-80s. Mid-80s. Uh, it just felt like home. Oh. As soon as I walked on campus and the the involvement I got into with all of the things that I loved transcended all of the classes <laughs> that I ever took. <laughs> Hands down. Was same, same with you? Same here. Same here. I um, the, My first day here, uh, I had a, a, a really lucky moment. I, I ran into this kid, one kid that I knew from from Cincinnati who was a, a sophomore here. He said, hey, I'm, I'm going to a party. Come with me. And I went up to West State Street, 77 West State Street, where I met a gaggle of sophomore and juniors uh-huh. that had been older here, people. Older folks, right? <laughs> I, was, I was 18 years old. I was barely 18. And uh, one of them was Brian Unger. What a combo. And his roommate was Bill Brand, and their roommate was Dan Crossy. And Dan Crossy, Bill Brand, and Brian Unger all had found WOUB, had found that the radio and TV world was a real opportunity here. And they come with us. And I remember coming one Saturday evening, and Brian was hosting the jazz, Saturday night jazz. Yeah, that was his thing. And he had gotten... The big gig, right? I right. guess that was a big thing. It was. For him to have the, the Saturday Night Jazz. And it, 
you know, I was hooked. It was instantaneous that I found, like you said, home. You found family and community passionate about something that I was hungry for. And you're like me. You know, I still have some of my best friends, mm. you know, 40, 50 years later are the people that I started with at the university. I, I've kept track of. They've kept track of me. Indeed. We go years without speaking sometimes, but then we get back together, and it just clicks again. It, it, exactly. I, I just got an amazing, loving text from Brian wishing me luck for Saturday, saying, don't worry, you'll knock him dead. Have fun. Get up there and enjoy yourself. Uh, helping me, you know, let go of the butterflies. Sarah, who's here, who really was one of the first people I ever met here. She's now the head of one of the alumni departments yeah, here. Right. And she brought me back. And her passion and love, all of ours, um, you know, people don't really understand when they, you know, you go start talking about your college experience with folks. And they're like, yeah, 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 college was great. And we're like, no, no, you don't understand. I went to OU. I was in Athens, Appalachia Valley, the gorgeous Harvard on the Hawking, the the you know the same architects that built all of that passion just stays with us in a way that my my partner, my business partner Michael Williams, who have been I was married to for twenty five, we'll get there, uh, business <laughs> partners for thirty five. Uh, he still tells me he's like I've never seen a group of friends in a community that has been born out of their experience at college like I have with David and his time at Ohio University. Well, it, it's it's wonderful to have you back. Thank I, you. I, I, I do want to take you, though, from 1989 when you yeah. graduated mm -hmm. to when you started Scout Productions in 1994. Now, that's five years. Yeah. You had to be mid-20s. Yeah. Uh, did you know what the hell you were doing? <laughs> what do you think? I didn't have a clue. I didn't have a clue. Did you have a vision? Yeah. What, uh, what uh, prompted yep. you to, instead of going the route of working for others and doing this, mm -hmm. to say, no, no, I'm going to do this yeah. on my own? Uh, thank you. It's a, it's a really great question and a great time for me to reflect on that on that memory. So I had one of those moments, right? You know, they say we, we make our own luck, right? We're in the right place at the right time, and you see an opportunity and you grab it. Um, I had one of those happen. Um, I graduated in May of, of 89, and I went back to Cincinnati. While I was here at OU, I had become kind of good at editing, right? I was in the big old days with the big beta machines <laughs> and the big tapes yes. that you had to sling. And I had, I felt like, oh, that's my trade. I get it. That's what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm going to be an editor. So I applied at a place in Chicago back in the time called Editel, and I got a job, but it didn't start until September. So I had the summer, and I remember here, I don't know which professor, one of the, my professors in in, uh, in the TCOM building back in the day, um, said, you know, why don't you call the film office and intern at the, at the local film office during your downtime? Probably early June of 89, I went on a, on a rainy Tuesday afternoon uh, and, and pulled up into the film office and was going to go in and inquire about sure. internships. And as I did, this kind of frantic woman was having a meltdown. And she's like, do, do, do you have a car? Can, 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 you get, can you get to the airport? And I was like, yeah, sure. What do you, what, what's going on? She's like, I need you to pick someone. But listen, 
I need you to not talk to them. I need you to just put them in your car with your luggage and drive them downtown <laughs> to the West End. Please just don't talk their heads off. And I was like, okay. So I get to the airport, and there's a big punchline here. I picked up Jodie Foster <laughs> and Peggy Reisky. <laughs> Peggy Reisky, uh, mammoth Hollywood producers. I went on right. to, to direct Trevor. We created the Trevor Project. Jodie Foster, it was a, her directorial debut right. uh, for a film called Little Man Tate. And I picked him up. And, of course, I didn't shut up. I talked the whole way. <laughs> la, 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 la. And you know this. And, 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 and oh, by the way. Yes. <laughs> And as we pulled up to the hotel and I was helping getting them out, Jody hit me on the shore and said, all right, I'll see you at 6.30 tomorrow morning. And I was like, what, what? 6.30 tomorrow? Uh, yeah, all right, I'm here. So the story that, that still has kind of gone down in infamy, I show up the next morning at 6.30 in a three-piece suit with a briefcase <laughs> and my resume. <laughs> <laughs> That has nothing on it, but that I graduated from Ohio University and my internship at Production Plaza. And I worked at WOUB. And I worked at WOUB was on there. It was. Of course it was. I had everything I had done. And I walk into this room, and Jody, very early on, had built a beautiful environment of really strong, powerful women. And Carol Cuddy was there, who's gone on to become Martin Scorsese's producer. She was the production manager. We had uh, 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 another producer. All these women. I walk in, this little boy in a three-piece suit with a, and they start howling. They are cracking up, looking at me like, oh, my God, kid, what are you doing? But what was nice about that moment, I bonded with them. I got to connect with them. And... More importantly, Jody gave me probably two bits of two pieces of advice that changed everything for me. Um, the first and foremost, she said to me, "Look, you don't have to be a PA. You don't have to be a production ass assistant. And by the way, if you do become one, don't become too good at it, or else you're going to get stuck there. Stay there. You're going right? to get stuck there." She said, and two, she said, "Look, everybody thinks they want to be on set. They want to be on set." David, do you want to babysit orange parking cones? And I was like, no. no. She's like, well, then how about you sit at my desk and you watch the entire movie go across my desk. You watch every single thing that makes the movie happen go across my desk. And I promise you, you're going to figure out what it is you want to do next. Wow. It was what that simple. It was an opportunity that that moment yeah. that I was – Aware enough, because boy, did I want to go to set. Yeah. That your your head tells you sure. that's where all the action is. Yeah. That's where it's going to happen. And I sat in a hundred degree production office in over the Rhine. Yes, in in, 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 in downtown Cincinnati. Cincinnati. And uh, by the way, not the over the ride that exists now. No. It was, it was rough <laughs> and no air conditioning. Right. We had like windows and fans. And um, I, I watched the movie go across me um, to the point of not being a PA. During the early part of pre-production, there was a moment where they were having a big air conditioning issue. Somehow or another, I opened the Yellow Pages. Yes, Yellow Pages. That's how old yes. I am. And I ended up finding a construction air conditioning company. Anyways, I solved a pretty specific issue <laughs> for production. Sure. I solved getting like construction air pumped into this to this this building. 
And the production manager, Carol, started calling me special projects. Hey, special projects, come here. And she'd give me something to go and do focus on and make happen. At the end of the at the end of this uh, movie, the time it all wrapped up, I took Jody back to New York, Peggy back to LA. I had my moment and I was done. Uh, the film came out a year and a half later, and I thought I was just gonna be under the PAs. Sure. My very first credit in the industry. Special Projects uh, Coordinator <laughs> David Collins on on Little Van Tate and and if you extend that yeah th- that's still what you do indeed it, it, Tom, it, it is. is it not it is I mean yeah. you you yeah. create but but you're still that Special Projects Coordinator coordinator just at a much higher level I, I love that you say that I see that it, yeah thank you it's it's that that moment really changed everything for me. Um, all the And it gave you the confidence then just to say, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do and this. And I'm going to do this on my way Yeah, and, and on my own. Yeah. And I, I met Michael, uh, who was my, my business partner and, and my husband for 25 years, father, uh, uh, papa to our children. We have twin 14-year-olds. Um, and he and I, from Jody, really were inspired to tell our own stories and to find our own stories. So after after Little Man Tate, I went on and I was Olivia Newton-John's assistant for a little while. I was Diane Weiss' assistant for a little while. I then landed on a film called House Sitter, where I was the assistant location manager. Michael was the location manager, and I learned everything from him. He got a Hoffa, the Danny DeVito, uh, Jack right. Nicholson movie, and went off to do that. And then I got moved up to be location manager on House Sitter. And then I went on to do Hoffa and Blown Away, big movies, uh, sure. big, big studio movies. And along the way, you realize these big studio movies, you are you don't have a lot to do, right? I mean, you have a, plenty of do work-wise, but your input is is yes. limited. Right. And Michael and I... Uh, You're not part of, part of the vision. Not part of the vision. And in 1994, we both kind of looked at each other, and we had a partner at the time. Her name was Dorothy Alfiero, and the three of us kind of shook hands, grabbed hands, and said, let's do this. Let's figure this out. So what we did, <laughs> we started Scout Productions at the top floor of our house in West Roxbury, Massachusetts. I remember the day. It was a big day. We got a fax machine oh, in wow. 1994 and, and a phone line. We had a fax You're machine. Golden. We were ready to go. And and, um, and from that day, one of us would go and do a paying gig and send their paychecks home, and we would split the paychecks. Supporting the family. Supporting yeah. the family. And by the way, many a times you couldn't rub two nickels together. Yeah, right. Yeah. So so when you started, I think you are known to be the person who is not afraid to tell stories of marginalized populations. Mm-hmm. Was was that a commitment? Is that something that you talked about at the inception, or is it something that evolved? Yeah, great question. It's definitely something that evolved, right? Um, and it, it we made a lot of indie features for a long time that were our passion projects. We thought we had found that script, and I would go out and get people to write checks and help pay to make these indie movies. And some really cool ones, Never Met Picasso was one of our very first films, and then Six Ways to Sunday with Adam Bernstein, which led to Session 9, which was a really great uh, psychological thriller we did with Brad Anderson. And... Um, and during those times, you're kind of honing and fine-tuning 
what it is that resonates with you. What what is passionate? What what drives that storytelling? Um, and honestly, it, it, this kind of fast forwards and leads us up to probably the most seminal changing moment in in my life, um, which was in two thousand and two. Nine um, eleven had happened. The world had changed and would continue to change. Um, and what Scout had become in Boston, we were a production services company, right? Mm-hmm. We made our money by servicing LA and New sure. York. They would come into town and Cheers, for example, the opening of Cheers, we would go and film and produce the opening of Cheers, all of the sitcoms that were happening. A movie would come in and we would get the second unit. So we would do all of the B-roll shots. Uh, but So you you were a company that was an outsourced company. We were an outsourced company. We were a production services company. And then 9-11 happened, and everything stopped. Everything came to a screeching halt. And uh, coming back to not having a penny, we weren't leaving to go do jobs. Uh, we were like, phones were cut off. Lights were cut off. It was that bad. It was, you know, I'm on the, on the wrong side of 30 at this point. Yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how we're going to survive even to just eat. And, um, and something special happened on a, on a Sunday afternoon. Um, this is part of my commencement speech, the story I'm going to tell. But I, on a Sunday afternoon, Michael and I and our two best friends went down to uh, open studios in the south end of Boston. I like to call it, it was the Gaberhood. And uh, it was uh, open studios where artists would show their art and sure. you drink wine and cheese and look at art and feel, feel good about doing something intellectual. And we walked up into this huge loft. And in this room, there's a couple hundred people. It was packed. And right as we came in, there kind of was a scuffle happening in the middle of the room. And and this woman starts to speak really loudly as she berates her husband publicly. Look at you. You're a mess. Why do you, why do you dress like this? Your hair, your shirt, your shoes, your, you're just total mess. Why can't you be more like them? <laughs> and when I tell you, the room went dead silent. You could have heard a pin drop. All 200 people watching this moment happen. Out of the blue, in the far corner, like a mirage, three of the most handsome, incredibly well-dressed, perfectly coiffed men come striving across the floor like superheroes, and they surround the guy. They push the wife aside, like, "Ma'am, ma'am, that is not what we do here." And and they start and they start loving on him, and they start fixing his hair and tucking in his shirt and adjusting his belt and shoes and putting a cuff on his pants, all the while really telling him. You got this. You're great. Look at you. You're super. Marvel and superheroes. It was total, <laughs> total superheroes. And without missing a beat, I remember I turned to Michael and I said, did you see that? That was like Queer Eye for the straight guy. And as the words came out of my mouth, I knew. I kind of just knew something clicked. And Michael turned to our friends and he's like, I don't know who. Where or what? But that is going to be something in a year. He wasn't wrong. It, it, he it, wasn't wrong. It exploded. I'm curious about the name, and, yeah. and your story perhaps explains it. But back then, there were very few mm. shows mm. Uh, reflecting gay life mm. or, or gay people mm. as, as human. Gay and, people uh, at all. Yeah. yeah. And, and so I thought – did they choose the title 
to make it more palatable to a broader audience by putting straight guy in the title. Mm-hmm. But no, it was no, something totally it, it different. Was just, it I was, was just, giving you some political yeah. motivation there. <laughs> it was really just what happened. It came out of my That's mouth. That's amazing. The, 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 the idea of queer eye for the straight guy, I think it was a little rhymy, right, for me. But also, interestingly enough, when I look back in hindsight, and I and I do, I have found a, a notebook where my original writings and notes were, I remember looking up the word queer, and queer in the dictionary was just like a unique perspective, a, a, a different point of view, a queer point of view. And so to look at it, there was a part of me, look, the word queer instilled fear in me, right? When I heard the word queer, well, it in, in the hell in out of me. In 2003, <laughs> yeah. it, it was a slur. Oh, yeah, it, it, it was not embraced. Without question, without question. Um, but, you know, what happened after that moment when just to come full circle back to your question of that lens and that idea of marginalized community, um, my best friend happened to be a straight guy, and he and I didn't have any judgment with each other. I didn't care he was straight. He didn't care I was gay. We were just best friends, and because I like shoes didn't make me gay because he watched football didn't make him straight, and our bond really creatively came together. And Dave Metzler and I, I was obsessed with Esquire magazine yeah, back right. then, back I, in the day. And I, uh, they had five categories, fashion, grooming, interior design, culture, food, and wine. And I took all five of those categories and assigned them to each of the guys. In our Fab Five, the gay superheroes were born. Um, and back then, uh, I think the original Queer Eye on Bravo, they indeed were superheroes that flew in and flew out. Right. And we didn't really know who they were. We didn't know that Carson had a boyfriend or that Tom, no, no, Tom no was back married. Story. There weren't any backstories. Uh, America wasn't ready. To, to have that conversation yet. And that's the truth, right? They just weren't. They liked, like, oh, look, the gay superheroes. Those are cute. They're helping that straight They're guy. They're helping that straight guy. <laughs> and Ted was kind of like your next door neighbor, the guy you went to college with. And they were, they were palatable. Carson was out there, right? right? Carson was loud and made people a little nervous, but he was funny. So they let him, they let it go. But that's really that moment that for me and Michael, we saw the opportunity to, to tell stories that. And, and you've continued to do that mm. in various genres. Yeah. Uh, Queer Eye was, was reborn, I believe, in 2018. Yeah. With, yeah. with Netflix. With Netflix. Uh, you, you converted, not totally, but you made the conversion to streaming pretty early. We did. We were, we were the very first unscripted series for uh, Netflix. We were their first acquisition. Quick, fun story. They, when we went to them, we heard that they were looking for an evergreen format that had a feel-good heart to it and had some uh, international name recognition. And chick, 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 right? We yeah. checked those boxes. And um, and so it, we were uh, – it was an acquisition as opposed to a, a buy, which is why we were, we were lucky on the business side. We were one of the very first uh, in Bravo days. We owned our IP. Uh, it was original IP. And so I owned the IP with NBC yes. Universal still. So I was able to license it back to uh, – to Netflix when it happened because a lot of those years in between the original Queer Eye and the new, it was it was a rough time, right? Because 
everyone would come to say, oh my God, t- can you get us a queer eye? Can you make us a, we need a queer eye. And then you'd bring them something and they're like, oh yeah, that's not really queer eye. Or, oh, that's that. And then when I got queer eye back and I was able to take it out to them, I'd be like, hey, I got queer eye. Oh no, that's too bravo. That's too bravo. And the cool part about Netflix was they didn't care. It was too bravo. They were Netflix. It was a whole different whole platform. Different platform. It, people didn't as- need to associate things anymore to where they had come from. Well, the new version yeah. dropped for the straight guy. Yeah, we did. It became Queer Eye. And, yeah. and what was the thought behind that? Yeah. Because that, I know that that took some decision making. Indeed it did. Indeed it did. And, and, and we also, you know, the idea of the Fab Five were no longer just going to be superheroes. The Fab Five were real Men. Real people. Real people but with had, real lives, yeah. with real stories, right? Karamo was married and divorced and had two grown sons. Uh, Anthony, um, Anthony's life, Tan's life, he was getting, he was married. They were trying to have children. All of their backstories became critical because they were sharing their stories. And it did not them. only just go uh, diversity in, in race and culture but but the stories it 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 showed gay life as yes. as a microcosm but uh, as a broad swath of life hands yeah. down yeah and, and, and i know that was purposeful it, indeed it was our our what we call our episodic heroes right so every episode has a hero and those heroes stories are what we really want to tell right and, and over the time you've taken it on the road so those people not only have stories but you're going to Rural Georgia? Yeah. yeah. And, rural and, Georgia, it, Kansas City, Philadelphia, New Orleans. Yeah. Not D- Cincinnati yet. We're coming. <laughs> We're coming. Don't you worry. I am I am I am working hard. I, I want to do a uh, tri-state region, Ohio, Indiana, and Kentucky. Yeah, uh, and I want to come go. right in the middle and, and knock it all out. But those hero stories really are Probably what I'm most proud of because those the new Fab Five and their interaction um, really helped refine and define what what our 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 filter is at Scout and our filter is is a my I can hear my partners rolling their eyes right now because I say it all the time <laughs> but it's our our filter is transformation through information told with comedy that has heart and it's as simple as this I share my story with you. And you share your story with me. And along the way, we're going to laugh a little and cry a little if we're doing it right. Right. right? We're going to connect. And that's really what Queer Eye is all about. It's about taking that those five guys, focusing it on that hero, and, and really allowing that hero to remember everything they need they already have. Sometimes it takes a gaggle of gaze to help shake it out of you. Sometimes you find it in yourself. Sometimes it takes 30 years of therapy. But whatever it is, our, our job, our humanity, right, is to help lift each other up. It's helped to, for me to see you and you to see me and for us to share that, that moment together. And in so many of your, your works, and I say they, they cross genres, I mean, you've done everything from documentary to contest shows yeah. to, uh, to real-life TV. Yeah. Uh, uh, you, you've now done an investigative piece that, that we're going to get to. <laughs> oh, yeah, uh, we are. But, but – but, <laughs> It's that common thread that you just described yeah. through all of those genres. Mm. I mean, the the genre doesn't preclude 
what you just talked about. No, it doesn't. And I, and I'll tell you to be very honest, it it was um it was a very uh, thoughtful and direct process on our end to break through that 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 box because Hollywood wants to put you in a box and they want to keep you in a box and they want you to stay in that box so that you're there and. I'm lucky that have such an amazing team at Scout that really fights the good fight for us. And creatively, when we come together, our passion for an idea and how it comes together really starts with our, our filter. Does it, is there a transformative element? And by the way, when I say transformation, it's not about a new dress or a new hairdo or a new couch. It's inside out work, right? What am I seeing happen? Um, I think probably one of our most one of my most proud series is Legendary that we did for HBO Max. Um, I don't think there's probably a more marginalized community than the African American trans community. Um, there was a very well known doc called Paris is Burning, right? Um, and when you when you watch that doc and you it's 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 a beautiful and heart wrenching documentary because it really started with a, a a Latin drag queen who was tired of losing to white girls and was trying to figure out a world that she could be celebrated in that they could celebrate and be affirmed and an affirming is is to me to be seen completely and whole and to be celebrated for that. And so for me, that really became even yet another layer of the storytelling. I wanted to be able to hand that microphone over to the houses because the ballroom community, if you all don't know, is just it's magical community. It's, it's magical. Ve- it's very expensive, incredibly committed people. Unbelievable. Uh, uh, unbelievably committed. Hands down. A- and as competitive as any <laughs> NFL game you oh, have ever seen. Oh, shade, no shade. Yes. <laughs> it is it is uh but they're they're you know, it was born out of out of necessity, yes. right? That's the part that I think the heart comes from because they they were fighting for their lives they were they were these were kids who were thrown out of their homes for for being gay for being trans for being different and 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 when i tell you thrown out like homeless at 14 yeah. and at 13 14 15 years old parents kicking them out and what would happen uh, and where the the beauty of the story comes is typically a trans woman um, who had fought the fight and was doing strong would bring these homeless kids into their home. Thus, the term houses were yeah. born. They would bring them into their house and and give them food, love, make sure they went to school, teach them some basic manners and basics, and then say to them, but at night – we dance, we celebrate, <laughs> and they would go and have balls and compete. And and so the ballroom culture really, um, it, there is no more beautiful story of these families who have come together. And so when we saw that world, I got invited to a, again, a very queer eye moment happened. I got invited to a ball in, in West Hollywood. I had never been to a ball. It was in a gymnasium. Um, and... <laughs> But I saw hundreds of kids who were just their beauty and their authenticity and their love. And I, and I was in the elevator afterwards, and I, there were two kids couldn't have been 15 years old, just bawling that they had been asked and invited to become part of a house. And I stopped them, and I was like, "Tell me what was it like? We got invited to be in the house of Gucci, and is a and you could see yeah. it was life changing for them. It was life changing. So I went back to the office and we ended having this moment where I was like, what are we doing here? We got to figure this out. And this idea of 
an arcade competition series set in ballroom where we get to celebrate the heck out of these houses, pick the best houses that come together to compete to become legendary. And timing was right. HBO was being born as a new streamer, HBO Max. And we had one of those Hollywood moments. This is a fun, quick story. We went in with a slate of shows that we were doing, and they bought them all. (laughs) those kind of moments don't happen they just don't happen but it was uh it was an amazing experience unfortunately hbo max is being merged in a larger buy with discovery and warner and the whole thing and and that went away um but don't worry legendary came back to us and we're going to go back out with it into the marketplace but the idea of all of the the genres arcing competition series paranormal yeah. that we're heading into, um, docu-series, documentaries. There's so much happening at Scout that's all been born out of that that rebirth of Queer Eye on Netflix. Talk about the one that's very popular now, The Gentle Art of Swedish Death oh. Cleaning. Um, I've, I've looked at a bunch of your interviews uh, about it. Uh, uh, and and it's a very unique concept yeah. of, again, to your point of transformation mm-hmm. of people through getting rid of their crap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> again, one of those fortunate moments where I was looking at the New York Times on a Sunday and the New York Times best-selling books, and I read this title, The Gentle Art of Swedish Death Cleaning. And – you don't read that and think, what the heck is Swedish death cleaning? Um, it was written by a woman, a little old Swedish woman, who really explained what death cleaning is. In Sweden, it's a philosophy. It's a way of life. Um, Swedes have a, a really funny way of – well, let me start here. Swedes aren't scared to talk about death. That's the bottom line. They all look at it and say, guess what we all have in common? We're all going to die someday. Oh, that's taboo here. I mean, here, we don't want to talk about it. We don't. (laughs) Americans are very, very weird about the topic of death. Let me buy something else. Exactly. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) And this this philosophy is innate for them. It's part of of their everyday culture, right? So if you think about the Swedes' aesthetic, it's very minimalistic, right? They don't have thousands of tchotchkes and knickknacks all over it. They don't buy, buy, buy. They don't have storage facilities to hold their stuff in and have their home, right? Right. They're, they live with purpose. And and, and what the, the beauty is is that death cleaning really, it's through the lens of death that we live. It's 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 that simple, right? And so the series, as much as it has death in the title, it really isn't about dying. No, it's about, it's about living. living. It's about You're living. Right, right. And so um, we, we took the book. We crafted a format, an idea around how do we have three Swedes come to America and teach Americans the gentle art of Swedish death cleaning. Um, our agents at WME uh, somehow or another were like, I think Amy Poehler's Swedish. I was like, I don't know if she's Swedish, but um, <laughs> but we good we, idea, good idea. <laughs> and uh, our kids happened to go to school together, 
And Amy said, well, I'm not Swedish officially, but I'm Swedish by marriage. My brother Brother married a Swede. And her brother lives there, And her brother's lived in Sweden for over 20 years. So they visit Sweden all the time. And Amy really understands Swedish culture. And she understands the – because Swedes are very direct. And they'll they'll tell you. They don't really have a sense of humor. They're just very direct about how they speak. And and by the way, they mean it lovingly. It's all with love and and, and truth. It's just that sometimes – it hits Americans really hard how direct they are. If, if people haven't seen it, she, uh, Amy Poehler is the narrator and, and does a, a incredible job yeah. of bringing a lightness to something that's that's very serious yeah. without demeaning it. It she she just has the appropriate amount of of humor. Uh, in her voice, yeah. to 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 pull it off. I, I'm not describing it well. <laughs> no, but, you're, you're completely right. She she takes the she takes what otherwise might be a really heavy moment, <laughs> and and adds the levity to it. It helps realize that look, if we can't laugh at ourselves and we can't laugh at the situation, you're not going to get very far, right? We have to be able to look at our own humanity. And I think that's what she does so beautifully. She reminds us that we're all human. I, I see that you and your company, Scout, are, are now partnering yeah. with other groups more than you had in, in, yeah. in the past. Mm-hmm. Uh, you partnered with Amy's company. Uh-huh. Uh, Paper Kite. Paper Kite mm-hmm. uh, d- uh, to do this. Uh, you've got, I, I believe, coming out on FX May nineteenth. Uh, you, you've got a a new documentary on the the secrets of the Hillsong Church. Yeah, excuse me, Hillsong Church. Uh, but you partnered with Vanity Fair, who, yeah. who really broke that story. Is that something you're looking for now to be able to do multiple things at the same time instead of just focusing on one or two projects? Great question. Yeah, for sure. We are – let me just say that – and I do say this humbly and and realize how how grateful and and blessed we are – a lot of celebrities, sure. a lot of folks who are do scripted, right? Um, who are like think oh, I'll never do unscripted or reality. They like our storytelling. They like that we're authentic. They like the idea of transformation told with comedy and heart. So we've had a lot of amazing celebrities who have come to us with ideas and said, "Hey." Can we craft this with you? Can we figure this out with you? Um, and it's kind of coined a term. It's the scoutification of an idea. So we scoutify the idea. And that's how we look at, so, you know, legendary. It could have just been an arcing competition series, but we wanted to figure out how to scoutify it. Um, Swedish death cleaning could have just been a transformation series, but we, we wanted to scoutify it. So um, Vanity Fair is owned by Condé Nast. And Condé Nast, we have been talking about various projects. And look, they own all of these publications. And and so those publications come with hundreds and thousands of articles uh, each month. And we're always sifting through to see something that resonates with us. And I had a very personal connection with the Hillsong Church. Um, I took my children there when they were very young. I, I was going through a rough time in my own life. I was going through a divorce. Um, I had two small kids. Um, 
I was I was regrounding my I was a little you know dis, dismantled with my career what was happening what I was doing and I found the Hillsong Church and and when I found that church I didn't ask any questions but to circle all the way back to my Ohio roots and my little the little boy from Cincinnati Ohio from Westchester you know I grew up Southern Baptist evangelical um, you know I was the eleven year old boy on the front row being told he was going to burn in hell for yeah. being who he was right. And um, I never wanted my kids to to feel that or to see that. And so when I was at Hillsong, all of a sudden I realized one day it was Mother's Day and I had taken my kids and dropped them off at at, at Sunday school and the Sunday school teacher uh, was there. And I turned back around real quick and I just said, hey, by the way, my kids don't have a mom. It's Mother's Day, but they can make a card for grandma or, or nana. No big deal. And he turns, everyone has a mother. And I was like, well. That's not true. I was like, in IVF, gestational surrogacy, we have an egg donor, but you know, said he's like, well, you know, we teach the Bible here. And I was like, Uh-oh. yeah, that's why I'm here. Go, Jesus. And, uh, <laughs> and he said, well, honor thy. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Honor thy parents? And he's like, yeah, right, parents. And Tom, I, I took my kids' hands and I felt the blood drain from my head and my fit, pit in my stomach. And I walked out of this place that was home for me. So when Vanity Fair came and they had an article that was about not it, it, the article was about Carl Lentz, their head pastor, had 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 fallen from grace. Right? I wasn't interested in telling a story about another pastor who had. Had an affair. Same old, same old. Same old, same old. That wasn't the story. The story for me, again, pushing that dialogue, that transformation was, what's the bigger picture here of evangelicalism in in mega churches in America? What was happening? Why was I... This this guy, David Collins, who feels like he's a smart guy and knows what he's doing, gets so sucked in to something. And what? why didn't I ask questions? Why did I have that moment happen? So for me... To get to make that doc, this is probably the most personal doc that I've been part of my whole career. Um, I'm really proud of it. Our director, Stacy Lee, um, I'm proud that I found Stacy, who's an independent. She's a Kiwi. She was a young woman who who had a, an amazing vision and great style. And uh, FX allowed me to bring her on as our director and our partners at FX Hulu have given us such amazing support. Um, this one I'm really proud of. It, now, it comes uh, out. as I understand it, it's going to be two nights, May 19th and May 20th, two episodes. 26th. 26th. Yeah, two okay. and two. Two and two. Yeah. Uh, so it's a very limited series, but if people don't have Destination TV or yes. don't watch FX, uh, It'll they, be on can, Hulu. they can get it on Hulu the next day. Correct. Is it, yeah, it, that's it, correct. Do I have it right? You're right. Yeah, 100%. Uh, the other one that, <laughs> that, that just fascinates uh-huh. me is Mer People mm. uh, coming out on, on Netflix uh, yeah. on May 23rd. Again, two projects going, same time, two premieres within a week one of week. each other. Got to drive you crazy. I'm amazing. <laughs> I'm amazed your phone hasn't blown up <laughs> <laughs> since we've been talking. Yeah. Uh, you are looking at people who have become mermaids in a sense, mm-hmm. but 
it's a multi-billion-dollar industry. What, <laughs> can, can you give us a, a, a bit of a trailer on this? One? I certainly will. I certainly will. So, um, I don't know if you remember a place called Wikiwachi. No. Wikiwachi was down in Florida. It was kind of um, when we were kids. We used to call it kind of the poor man's Disneyland. Okay, and Disney World, right? And it was um, a park that was built on the springs okay, in, gotcha. in in uh, Sarasota, and in the the springs at, at Wikiwachi, um, they used to have. Mermaid shows. And the mermaid shows, where would they put tails? They would dive down into a tank, and you would sit in front of a big glass window, and, and the mermaids would dance. Very Ethel Merman. It's sort of a, a synchronized swimming synchronized on steroids. Synchronized swimming on steroids. <laughs> Hands, you nailed it. You nailed it, right? Well, flat, that, that's kind of the basis for this. But the bigger picture is that, look, there's all kinds of subcultures in the world. There's all kinds of communities in the world. And this is a community of folks that have found each other despite their body size, their sex, their sexuality, their their race, their interests, all of that. And they found community that when they put their tails on and they're in the water, they feel whole. They feel free. They see each other differently. They love performing. They love the, the freedom that comes when I put the tail on. Um, it has grown and it is indeed a billion-dollar industry. Those tails are like eight to $10,000 because they're gorgeous silicone yeah. tails. Oh. They look completely Amazing. real. Yeah, 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 completely real. We happened to find that Wikiwachi was being sold and the Nestle water was buying the spring and there was kind of the Mer Taylor who made Taylor who was competing <laughs> with this. There's a series on Netflix called Cheer. Yeah. And everyone has been saying it's cheer with tails. So the beauty is we follow a group of, of, of mer people, of mer folks who kind of are on their journey to find community, connection, um, a job, right? Um, there's now mer people uh, uh, competitions all over the globe, all over. And, and I mean, it's global, it's huge. And uh, Netflix really got it. They instantly got it in the first pitch. And so we're doing a four-part limited series that we hope will get picked up and go on to make many, many series to come. How do you scoutify this? The scoutify of that. Again, I, I think it's the heart. It's the telling of the stories, right? The, the, the people transform. The people Once transform. they put on the tail, I understand that they transform. And they yeah. be either become their true selves or become the self that they want to be. Hands down. They get to live the fantasy out. It's, it's quite lovely. It's, it's moving. I, I, I hope you, you take a time to watch it. And there's, a, there's a beauty to it that is uh, – it's, it's very intense, uh, the, the loveliness of it. Our, our director, Cynthia Wade, uh, she was on the nominated for Academy Award. Uh, she's an amazing director who had an amazing vision as well. And, you know, I tell you, that's probably the greatest job I have. I, I, I'll, I'll circle back to tell you, I um, – I'm a, I'm a master of, of, of nothing. I, 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 am, I, I do it all. I, I think what I do well is I have good I have good taste. I see the talent in others and I appreciate it and I love it. And my my Instagram handles at style taste and class. And <laughs> and I and I, I like to say that I remind myself about style, taste, and class all the time. That I wanna 
always be presented to have class, but that for me, I love when I see something. And and by the way, people will bring me 17 things and we're like, I like one, I like two, I like 17. And we merge those together. And and that's what I, that's for me, the process that I love, the creative process of working with the teams, building the teams that get to go out and make that. And then we start to see the footage and put the cuts together. And, and then the magic starts to happen in editing and you add the graphics and the music and the and the sound effects and the color and it it really just becomes you're, you're, magical. You're still sitting at Jodie Foster's desk. Mm. <laughs> you're yeah. you're sitting where she was. You're, yeah. you're 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 making all the parts come come together. Come together. Let me ask you one last thing. And yeah, I'll, I'll let you go. No and, rush. And, and that is marginalized communities, gay communities, yeah. trans communities, and others. Yeah, have come not far enough, but come a long way mm-hmm. over the last 10, 15, 20 years, certainly since you were a young man, mm-hmm. uh, since I was a young man. Yeah. You know, it, it, but now we're butting up against you know, state legislatures passing yeah. incredibly restrictive legislation, mm-hmm. Congress talking about it, it's again become a political football. Mm-hmm. What does that do to you as a, a creative person? Does that give you impetus to pierce through that crap and get to the other side mm-hmm. or does it limit what you do? Do you, do you look at things differently? Do you have a mm-hmm. different energy? Yeah, uh, how does that? How do do the politics relate to your craft? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, look, it is um, it's unbelievable how far we've come and how quick it quick it it went away and can go away. Um, look, in 1985 here at Ohio University. Like I said, I was one of the very few out guys, right? And, right. And, and and I don't know where that confidence came from other than I had fought some rough things in my childhood. And when I came here, I was kind of determined that I wasn't going to be. And I love to tell this story because it, it's, it's something that really has pushed me even more than my work. Um, I was blessed with twin girls uh, who are now 14. But God in uh, the universe's sense of humor, my daughter Ella was five. She was in the back seat of the car. She caught my eye in the rearview mirror and she said, Daddy, I'm a girl, but I like boys' things. And I said, I'm a boy and I love girls' things. We're on the same page. But in that moment, I knew she was coming out to me and she had come out. And I didn't want her to ever, ever have to come out again. Because that was enough. That was it. She was just telling me who she was. At five years old, she knew who she was. She said, I'm a girl, but I like boys. It felt different to her. She knew. And so that moment for me shifted my own homophobia. Because despite being what I would consider a pretty solid, actualized gay man at 56, I was filled with homophobia. I was filled with the, the 80s gay of me that was like, the more masculine that I was, and yeah. <laughs> the better the better that the I could be accepted as a gay man. And I didn't want my daughter, 
my daughters, to have to ever feel that or live that. So it really became an even bigger impetus in our storytelling. And now with everything that's going on, I, I'm, I'm on many boards and I get asked to speak at amazing organizations like the Way Out organization in LA that basically goes and finds all these small nonprofits that little ones in Ohio and Oregon and in Oklahoma and supports them, right? And, and their messages of whether it's for the trans community, the LGBTQIA plus at large, and so at Scout, what we do is just hunker down and stay true to that original vision, that idea of transformation, that, um, that idea of handing the microphone over, not because we want to know what to say, but because we get, they deserve to have the microphone in their hand and tell their story, to share their truth. Again, this is about I see your humanity and you see mine. And through that, hopefully, just hopefully, we continue to grow and break out of what's happening. Look, this, this don't say gay, the drag bills, all of that that's happening. It's, it's just crushing our souls. It's taking away from the beauty of what it is to be here and be alive and embrace this, this amazing life that we all get to share. And, and look, to sound cliche as it is, it, it is about the future. It's about the kids. It's about the next generation of kids here at OU that get to see it differently than you and well, I did. It, it, it's, it's amazing. I'm, I'm 74 years old, and all of the things that I have fought for— Yeah. My entire life, entire professional life, I see being eroded or chipped away. And it's it's difficult because one wants to feel sorry for, you know, look at my life. What yeah. have I actually done? Yeah. But then, as you said, you start looking at the future. I look at my four-year-old granddaughter and yeah. say, you know, what kind of world are you going to live in yeah. where, where everybody is treated with dignity? Yeah. You know, we've got to make that happen. We do. And we, each one in their own way, yeah. we have to make that happen. Amen. David, it's been an mm. absolute delight. Thank, Thank you so you. much for talking with me. Amazing. Thank you so much. I appreciate, appreciate it. Today, our guest was award-winning producer David Collins. He shared insights into his career, his philosophy of storytelling, and how he gives voice to marginalized populations. Spectrum is produced by WOUB Public Media. Adam Rich is our co-producer. I'm your host, Tom Hodson. Please subscribe to Spectrum. You can do that at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or at NPR One. Spectrum also is available through the NPR podcast directory. We always welcome your feedback, so please rate our podcast or review it through one of your favorite podcast outlets. If you have questions or comments about our podcast or have suggested topics for us to cover, please submit them to me by email. You can do that at hodson at ohio.edu. That's Hodson, H-O-D-S-O-N, at ohio.edu. Have a good day, everyone.